And all right, let's go all the way to the left. Shouldn't be hard to find and open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. You know, I think every human being, whether they admit it or not, uh, at some point in their life, really kind of naturally considers certain questions. Uh, many times when I do funeral services, in fact, I will uh, bring to people's attention what I think happens at least every time somebody dies and you have a group of people standing in front of you at a funeral service. Uh, and all of a sudden, everybody's world slows down. People have taken off of work. They're not in their everyday activities. And they're sitting there in that moment. And whether they want to or not, all those deep and sincere questions buried down inside the conscience of every human being come rising to the surface. Questions like, you know, what is the meaning of life and why do we die and most importantly, what happens after we die? And, and I think there are indeed real sincere, honest questions that by design God's created to just sort of nag at our conscience as human beings created, as we'll see tonight, in the image of God, who God has given a conscience, a moral compass inside of every one of us. And as that conscience is still tender before God, as it doesn't become hardened, I think that the Spirit of God prompts us to ask questions. And especially as we go into the book of Genesis this evening, I think one of the very sincere questions that everybody asks at some point in their life or throughout their life is a question, simple questions like, why are we here? And, and how did we get here? And what's the purpose for us being here? What's the reason for our existence? And I think the answers to those questions ultimately then determine really the way that we live our life. If you have a true understanding of why we are here and how we honestly got here, the true way that we got here not the, the lie that our world propagates through evolution and other concepts and philosophies that are out there. But when you truly understand why we're here and how we got here and the real existence for us being on this ball of dirt that we call earth to live out our years, it's amazing how that as a basis really affects the way that you chart your course and you live out your life because you understand the reason for your existence, you understand your purpose, you understand that you're here by design, that there's someone who created you and who loves you and cares for you, but there's also someone who's going to call you into account for everything that you ultimately do with your life. And the wonderful thing is, is the book of Genesis answers all of those sincere and honest questions. It answers the question of why we're here and how we got here and what's life really about. That's really a lot of what is answered for us in the book of Genesis and especially in these first few chapters, we'll see as we go through them. The, the word Genesis basically just means beginnings, or we might better translate it, origins. Origins. And that's an important thing, because a lot of us don't really understand the origin, not only of our own existence, but the origin of a lot of things. And because of that, we have polluted and confused our concepts regarding a lot of the most important institutions of the things that exist on this earth. And we'll see in the book of Genesis, we'll find the origin of many things. We'll find the origin of the universe. We find described to us the origin of the earth and the heavens. We find the origin of things like order and complexity 
and design, not chaos and confusion, but complexity and, and order in the way things operate in our system. We'll find the origin of the solar system. We find the origin of life. Most importantly, certainly for many of us, we find the origin of man. We find the origin of marriage as we get to Genesis chapter 2. And there we begin to understand who created marriage and what's God's design and intention for marriage, that God created them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and these two shall become one flesh. And when we get there to Genesis chapter 2, we'll, we'll spend time looking, hey, what is God's design and intention for marriage? What's God's plan and purpose for its existence and how it's to happen? And how did God initiate and ultimately not just initiate but god even officiated over the first marriage ceremony there was no pastor there or or priest there or anyone conduct it was god and adam and eve and we'll see how god created these two by design and then brought them together and we see the institution of marriage that god created well if god created the institution of marriage and its origin it only makes sense if we want to understand how marriage works especially in a culture where marriage is continually failing chronically and lives are being hurt, and divorces are ruining family lives, and children are suffering the ripple effects of those consequences, we need to understand the origin of marriage is God. God created marriage, and therefore God has the right directions regarding how marriage is supposed to work and how it won't work. We see the origin of family as then Adam and Eve begin to procreate. We see the origin of evil. How did everything get so evil on this planet? Well, Again, the book of Genesis answers the question of how evil entered into this planet. We see the origin of evil. We find the origin of government, the origin of language. As we get to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, we see the origin of nations and how we have different nations. We ultimately see as well something very important, and that is the origin of the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. And that is such an important, important foundational piece for our scriptural understanding to properly understand eschatology, which is the study of end times things. Because if we don't properly understand God's chosen nation of Israel, their purpose, their continual existence, and God's ultimate plan and fulfillment through them, not only was it to bring the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ, into this earth and to provide redemption and forgiveness for our sins, but ultimately God's entire plan hinges upon what he began in that one chosen nation of Israel. And if we don't properly understand what God promised them in the original covenant blessings and God's intention for them and the Abrahamic covenant and so forth, then we become very confused in our interpretation of the remainder of scripture that's ahead of us. And the book of Genesis is so essential because it really is the foundation, very obvious as the first book of the Bible, it's the foundation for the rest of the word of God. And really, it becomes like the foundation in a house. And if you don't build a good, healthy foundation, it's hard then to construct the rest of the house thereupon. And the book of Genesis becomes the foundation in many ways for a proper understanding of a lot of the rest of what we see in Scripture all the way to the book of Revelation, because everything that begins in Genesis in the paradise of God, when you get to the book of Revelation, then God is lifting the curse in Genesis or Revelation 21 and 22 in the New Jerusalem in the eternal city when we once again are with God forever and ever, and you see the curse is lifted, 
And once again, you see a tree of life and all the things that man lost in paradise in Eden when Adam and Eve fell into sin. You see God restoring all those things all the way on the last half, the latter portion of the Bible from beginning to end. God had a plan. Man spoiled the plan. Sin entered the world. But God in his love and faithfulness, despite what a mess we made, had a perfect plan of reconciliation and through the entire 66 books of the Bible accomplished all of that. And then in the last two chapters, we see God bringing back through his grace and the redemptive love of his son, everything that was lost. So such an important book. I'm glad that you're here tonight. And you know what? As we move through this book, and we'll probably go a little slower in the earlier few chapters, especially these first three chapters because of the foundational things that are here, but such critical things that we study in the book of Genesis that help us as we continue to make our way through the word of God. Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1. It simply opens by telling us, in the beginning... Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, it has often been said before, and let me restate, if you can accept by faith that first statement in the word of God and believe that by a choice, a conscious choice to believe that in the beginning, a self-existent, you know, sovereign God created the heavens and the earth. And you can believe that first statement in the Bible. Really, you won't have any trouble. You shouldn't have any trouble believing everything else in the word of God. If you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then it really should not be a problem for you as you study the rest of the Bible to believe things like Jesus walked on water. Well, if God created everything, how is it hard for God when he comes in human flesh to have complete authority over his creation? And if he chooses to, to say, you know what, I rule over creation because I created it. And the Bible says that in Jesus, in him, all things consist or hold together. He's holding it all together. You, you, won't have any problem, you won't have any problem believing the miracles of Jesus. You won't have any problem believing that God could part the Red Sea and let them walk through on dry ground. You won't have any problem believing Jonah and this great fish that God created to swallow him. And ultimately, as a result of his disobedience, to take him around for a while and get him back on track and then put him back on track as he sent him back to the mission God originally planned for him. And if you can accept Genesis 1-1 by faith, you're in a real good position to be able to embrace by faith the rest of what the Word of God teaches. If you can believe that, why can't you believe everything else in the Word of God? It should be a simple thing if you truly embrace what that says. And again, Hebrews says that it's by faith we believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. It is by faith. Either you choose to believe that or you choose not to believe that. But it's a decision of faith to believe upon it. It's interesting to me as you look at that first verse, even before we begin to look at the creation account, the Bible begins saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And that word God there is Elohim in the Hebrew, which literally is a, a term that refers to not just a plural form, but a compound unity. There's El, there's Elah, and then there's Elohim. And Elohim is a compound unity. The idea is it's an initial allusion to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And that's the term that we see used throughout the creation account. And we'll see how the Trinity was all three in, involved in creation. When we get to verses 26 and 27, God will say, let us make man in our image. What to me is very fascinating, however, is in the first few words of the scriptures, notice the Bible just assumes and declares the existence of God. In the beginning, God. Notice that the scripture spends no time trying to prove God's existence. God finds no trouble with that. God is self-existent. God is the everlasting God. And he is pre-existent, self-existent to all things. And in the scripture, there is no time spent trying to defend or trying to prove the existence of God. It just it starts with the assumption God just exists. Because God's pretty self-confident that he always has and doesn't need to defend that. Now, that's interesting because many times we feel the need to prove to people that God exists, right? We find ourselves struggling as if somehow God needs a little assistance, so we got to verify and we have to argue and dispute and get in debates. We need to prove to people that God exists. Listen, God has given plenty enough manifest evidence of his existence in creation, Romans 1 talks about, in the conscience of man and through the revelation of the word of God, whereby God is more than able to validate his existence to anyone. And the Bible begins with just the assumption and the declaration, God does exist. Well, when did I, I don't know. When was the beginning? I don't know. But God was the beginning. <laughs> He himself, nothing else was there, God was there, and in the beginning, God being self-existent, it says God then created the heavens and the earth. That's basically the summary statement for chapter 1 and 2, where we'll get the details of the days of creation, and then in chapter 2, it'll go back, and it'll sort of go back with more of a microscopic lens, and it'll sort of zero in and give us some more details of some of the aspects of the creation of man himself. But in the beginning, God created, and that word created is the Hebrew word bara, which is an interesting word because as we go through Genesis chapter 1, two different words will be used here to describe God's creative acts. One is the Hebrew word bara. The other one is the Hebrew word asah, which will many times be translated God made. And here's what's important. In the beginning, God created bara. That word bara in the Hebrew means to create something out of nothing. Here's what's important about that. Because it's demonstrating to us a capacity that God alone has. That no, We say, hey, w what do you think about this, you know, th this uh, you know, piece of furniture that I created? Well, technically, you didn't create that piece of furniture out of something. You took existing parts wood and maybe some nails and some glue and some dowels and out of existing parts through craftsmanship no doubt you fashioned and formed and assembled a piece of furniture but you didn't technically create it we use that term and, and we understand what we mean by that i'm not seeking to argue over semantics but that's vastly different than just speaking a piece of furniture into existence that'd save quite a bit of money wouldn't it you know just you know, sofa B, and you know, let's not get into faith and prosperity gospel, but that's vastly different. To assemble something out of existing parts is one thing. This word here, God created, means to create something out of nothing. 
And that is a capacity, as I said, that makes God unique and different than anything and anyone else. There is God who is creator, and then there is everything else that exists, his creation. That's what makes God holy. He's distinct, he's separate, and God alone has the capacity, as we see here, to just speak things into existence. And you'll see that God created, spoke into existence with nothing, no existing parts. He just creatively spoke into existence things that he wanted. And then we'll see as well that God also, in his creative genius, also at times we'll see God made, Asa, and we'll see this combination of God creating and God assembling and fashioning. So God did both. Now listen, by me saying that, please don't understand, I in no way adhere to what's you know, proposed in regards to things like theistic evolution and some of these bizarre ideas out there whereby God, some people will say, use the processes of evolution. That is not what the scripture teaches. The Bible knows nothing of that. But we do see God both creating and assembling in his creative genius. But the amazing thing is we see God, as I said, speaking into being when there was nothing there to start with. And that's the term we find right off the bat, in the beginning God created. Again, if you can believe that, if you can believe that God, your God, can speak into existence anything, even when there's nothing to work with and to start with, then what is it in your life that your God can't take care of? Oh Lord, I don't have money, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Listen, you think God can't generate something out of nothing? Oh Lord, this problem or this... Listen, this is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He can generate and provide and supply anything that you need in your life at any time. And this is the God whom we know, who designed us and who has a plan for our lives. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So he tells us the earth was without form and void. Again, what is that exactly referring to? We're not certain. It seems perhaps a, you know, a, a primitive form when God first created the heavens and the earth. We have the existence, at least certainly here at this point, of matter. We have the existence of, of things like elements and, and atoms and ultimately even energy. And these things are, are necessary for there to have been an existence of anything physical. What is interesting is it tells us in verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now notice here, as I said earlier, we begin to see you have God the Father. Now we have mentioned here already in verse 2 of the Spirit. And we know there are numerous places in the New Testament, John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians 1, where the Bible teaches as well that Jesus, God's Son, was also one of the active agents in creation. That through him, the New Testament says, through Jesus, all things were made that are made. So we have here all three members of the Godhead among the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all actively involved, cooperating in the creation act here. What's interesting, that term, the Spirit of God, it says, was hovering over the face of the waters. Some see that as a reference, the idea of the Holy Spirit presiding over creation and kind of, you know, you know, someone just presiding over the events of creation as the Father and the Son. It seems the Son was the agent actually 
performing creation, Jesus himself, from what we have of the whole of Scripture. When you look at that term in the Hebrew, and I don't want to stretch this too far, but some commentators have taken note that that term hovering, when you look at it in the original root in the Hebrew, it literally could be translated in the English language to radiate or to vibrate. And some see what could potentially be being described here is that the Spirit was actually at this point inputting energy into the matter and the elements and the things that exist. And how interesting could that be that if that was part of the role of the Spirit, introducing energy, which is essential in a creation process, the Bible tells us that the flesh profits nothing, it's the Spirit that gives life. And potentially here we could have an allusion to that. Maybe not only the Holy Spirit presiding, but maybe his role was the life-giving Spirit, giving life and energizing the creation into its existence as it was taking place. Verse 3 tells us, And then God said, so again, we notice how it happens, God speaks it forth. Then God said, verse 3, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. So here at this point, we see God now creating light verse 5 says and god called the light day and the darkness he called night so the evening and the morning were the first day so what does god do on the first day of creation it tells us on the first day of creation here that god causes a separation the way he does that is god uh, god uh, introduces light into his creation now here's what's very fascinating we don't find until the fourth day of creation that God actually creates the sun and the moon and the stars. Question then comes to mind, hold on a minute. So how can there be light introduced into God's creation? Because what we know of his light today is, well, that's what the sun provides. Well, listen, I certainly wasn't there. I'm sure we're going to learn about when we get there. But let's never forget that the Bible tells us that God is light. Okay? And light's not always just a physical thing. We just tend to think of light as a physical thing. God himself is light. He is the source of light. How exactly God brought light into the darkness, we're not certain, but obviously he doesn't need the sun to do that. You know, God didn't need the sun. God didn't need the stars. God simply said, let there be light. And God who is light, the Bible tells us in 1 John, said, let there be light. And it says, and there was light. You know, whatever God wants to come to pass, if God speaks it, it will be. If God wants to speak some promise or some provision or some assistance or, or whatever God declares, God has the power to perform. And God here declares, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good. Notice, again, God always sees light as a good thing because it dispels the darkness. And it says there in verse Four, that God divided the light from the darkness. Again, what is God doing from day one of creation? He's causing a separation from of darkness and light. And certainly no doubt there's a principle there. God's already beginning to reflect his nature. Romans 1 tells us that the invisible attributes of God are seen by what is clearly made. Creation is always testifying even of God's character. And here, right from the beginning, day one, first thing God does, he interjects light into the darkness and he divides between light and darkness. And there's a principle there, no doubt, spiritually, because that's exactly what God always wants to do. 
God always wants to shine the light into the darkness and separate light from darkness. Too many times we're trying to commingle light and darkness. The Bible says, what fellowship hath light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? And, and we want to mingle together light and darkness. And God says, no, there's a distinction. I want to draw a division between what is light and what is darkness. Jesus is the light of the world, he told us. It says that men don't want to come to him, John chapter 3. They don't want to come into his light because they want to continue to practice their evil deeds, so they stay in the dark. But here, right from the beginning, God's drawing a line. God's making a separation between light and darkness. No doubt a principle already being made evident as God made this separation on the very first day. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And again, notice how the Bible records a day. Evening and morning. And that's why to this day, again, Jews, God's people, taking the Old Testament scriptures literally, that's why they measure their day from evening to morning. That's why Sabbath begins from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday, because they measure from evening to morning. Their day begins at that point when you can see three stars in the sky because they take the scriptures literally. There was evening and morning, and we see that same pattern throughout the book of Genesis here in, in chapter 1, the first day. So they take that very literally, and here God begins with interjecting light that first day. Verse 6 then tells us, And then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And thus God made firmament, and the idea of that term there just means space, that God made a, a separation. So again, we have time, we have matter, we have space now, things being separated from one another, God's beginning to make divisions of this primitive earth that he began with at one point. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Verse 7, thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. What's this firmament referred to? Well, verse 8 answers that. God called the firmament heaven, or your Bible may translate that sky. It's referring now to the atmosphere. So we now have God establishing the atmospheric uh, heavens. And again, remember, in the Bible, the word heavens is used interchangeably to refer to the atmospheric heavens, to refer to the stellar heavens or the solar system. And many times the Bible, of course, uses the word heavens to refer to the eternal heavens or the aboding or dwelling place of God. Remember, Paul says, I was called up to the third heavens. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, what does that mean, the third heavens? Well, Paul's making a distinction because he understood the Bible uses the term heavens interchangeably. And here, New King James renders it heaven. Your Bible may say sky. It's referring to the atmosphere. But what's this a description of here where it tells us in verse 7... God separated the waters below the sky from the waters above them. Well, it seems we could here begin to have a reference to what many scholars believe existed, which was sort of a water canopy in God's original creation. Again, this is a pre-Diluvian time. This is prior to the flood of Noah. It has never rained on the earth. Remember at the time of Noah was the first time it ever rained and for 40 days and 40 nights, there were, you know, the rains came forth and from underneath, but also they had never experienced rain before. Many believe that prior to the time of Noah's flood, that when God initially created the heavens and the earth, that there was a water vapor or a water canopy that surrounded the earth, contributing in many ways to the conditions on the earth at that time. That water canopy that would have been there 
would have done things like block ultraviolet rays and these things today that we now know and understand are the very things that cause what? Breakdown and degeneration in our cells. So if this water canopy is truly what many scholars believe existed prior to the time of the flood and that it was broken and released when the flood of Noah came, that would then explain why it seems that there was a tropical paradise condition on the earth in this early stage. And it would also explain the, the indication very clearly in the early part of Genesis of the longevity of life and people living hundreds of years. Again, because there wasn't this degeneration of their cells, and of course the curse has also contributed to those things, which will happen in Genesis 3, but it would give explanation to the longevity of life and why things were the way they were. And, you know, interesting, we have found even at our polar ice caps things like fossils of, of 50-foot ferns you know, at the ice caps. We found mammals with tropical vegetation in their digestive tracts, indicating that at one time much of the earth seemed to have been like a tropical paradise in the original creation. It could be that's very clearly what we have, it seems, being referred to here of this firmament above the waters that God is making a separation with the atmosphere. And again, verse 8, so the evening and the morning was the second day. Verse 9, and then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, or literally it could be translated a basin, one into one basin, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Again, how did this happen? God said it. I mean, isn't that amazing? It's just so easy. We're familiar with this. We just read over it. We, we use familiarity breeds contempt, right? And we can become so familiar with the Word of God sometimes. And I find myself again, you know, today in preparing, just you just read over that, you just gloss it. Wait a minute, that's pretty impressive. God just said it, and it happened. And I think the same thing. We read the miracles. You know, I'm going through Second Kings in my devotions right now, and I read the miracles, and and I have to ask the Lord to prick my heart because I get so desensitized with the, the literal miracles. This is the God that we serve. And here we see our God in its earliest days in the creation account. He just speaks and says, let the waters be gathered together, all the waters into one basin, and let the dry land, the land masses, now begin to appear. And it was so, verse 10, and God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So at this point, we have God now establishing the sea basin and land mass. Interesting, all of the waters gathered to one place or one basin and dry land appearing. Could it be possible, again, prior to the time of Noah's flood, that there was one universal connected land mass of all the continents being somehow joined together and that through the cataclysmic events of the flood and so forth, that the waters then ended up in different basins and different seas, and the land masses shifted to what we currently have now on the earth on the other side of the great flood. We don't know that for certain, but it is interesting to me that it tells us that all the waters were in one place. They were in one basin when originally the first land mass appeared. And again, notice verse 10, God saw that it was good. As God's creating all this, and he's going to create now the vegetation and fruits and vegetables and, and, and animals and plants, again, we begin to say, and God saw that it was good. Do you know why when God saw it, 
to him it was good. I don't think it was just because he was proud of the work that he did. I don't think God has, you know, had an ego issue like, that's pretty good, you know, <laughs> the way we would be. Do you know why God saw it? And he said, that is good. Because in everything God was doing and creating, he had you and I in his heart the whole time because we were going to be his crowning creation. And once he made everything, he was going to put us into this creation to experience it and to enjoy it and to allow it to be one of the tools that he would use to reveal himself to us. And, and can you imagine what it must have been like in its pre-fallen form, how gorgeous and incredible and wonderful it was? So God says that, you know, that, that before the foundations of the world, we were already in his heart. He already had redemption planned. He already chose you before the foundations of the world. You and I were in his heart the whole time he's doing all this creation. He says, oh, that's so good. Wait till they see that. Oh, they're going when to, I, when I make them, I'm going to give them eyes and they're going to get to look at this beautiful landscape and to see these seas and they're going to get to taste these fruits and eat these vegetables and, and all these things God no doubt was just, I think in many ways, like, like a father on Christmas. You just couldn't wait. I know for me, I mean, I'm more excited on Christmas and my kids are older now. I've got to wake them up on Christmas. You know, usually wake me up at four o'clock in the morning. Now I got to go in 10 o'clock in the morning. Would you get up? It's almost New Year's. You know, <laughs> would you open these things? You know, I scrimped and you know everything we could to just buy these things for you. Would you open them? I'm all excited. You know, and I'm more excited than they are because I want them to enjoy what I provided for them. And I think God here, no doubt, had that same heart as He's creating all these things. It must have been an amazing experience thinking of man's existence coming. Verse 11. And then God said, "Let the earth bring forth grass." And the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit, take notice now, pen or pencil here, yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself. So it has the capacity to reproduce itself and to propagate itself to spread on the earth and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day. So on the third day, we now see God begin the creation of plant life and creating all of the vegetation, grass, and, and, and trees, and flowers, and all the incredible, beautiful things of all the different species, and phylums, and things that we learn about in biology, and that some of us admire if you're someone who you know, enjoys those kind of things, and, and gardening, or going to some of the beautiful places on this planet. Well, God's creating and designing all those things now. And again, how? Verse 11 says that God just said, let these things come forth. And he's speaking into existence with creative genius now. Putting forth these things that exist out there. But take notice of the repetition, verse 11 and 12, that the, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself. And you see this repetition. It has the seed encoded, all the DNA information within it, to be able to reproduce itself. You know, seeds are a fascinating thing. These tiny little seeds. And encoded in those tiny little seeds is all of the information in order to produce whatever it is it's going to produce. And you just take that, I mean, it's just a, really a, a miracle. You take this seed and you can keep the thing in a jar for five years. When I was uh, up, uh, pastoring the church 
in York there, one of the uh, guys that became very friendly with, he had a pretty good-sized property and did a lot of farming. And you know, So he was always sharing things. He would say, you know, it's, it's amazing. I can stick these seeds on a shelf for five or ten years, and they don't do anything. And then all of a sudden, I go outside, and I decide that year to stick that seed finally in the dirt, and I cover it over, and then all of a sudden, somehow, through sunlight and water and God's creative genius, this thing springs to life, and it has all the intelligence built into it to know exactly what to produce, what kind of plant, how big, how small. I mean, it's a phenomenal thing to really consider. And God created the plant life to be able to have seed within itself, and we know that those seeds... You, know, you look at different kinds of plants, they, you know, the hitchhiker kind and other ones, you know, they, they pollinize in all different ways how they can reproduce themselves. But the important thing is they have seed in themselves and they yield seed according to their kind. In other words, the Bible is telling us something very, very important here, especially as it applies to what's a part of trying to be communicated through the foolish ideas of the evolutionary theory, which says that one species can ultimately transition into a next species or to a higher species. Well, listen, the Bible, number one, knows nothing of that. And if you just examine creation itself, it evidences that that is not a reality. Now, listen, can mutations happen? Absolutely. Mutations, variations, there are different kinds of apples. But the apple seed, when you plant it, it yields fruit according to its kind. In other words, here's my point. You cannot plant an apple seed and get an orange. True. It always yields according to its kind. Mutations can happen, minor alterations among a species, but you can never plant one type of seed and get a different type of plant than that seed came from. It doesn't work. That completely contradicts the concept of the evolutionary theory that thing you know starts from this little pond scum ooze and some energy and then things evolve from and things transition from this species to this species to this species. Well, it, it proves itself wrong. The plant life indicates that. The animal kingdom indicates that. And here we see this very thing. And notice again how interesting it tells us, and God saw that it was good, again as he's designing these things, thinking about man. Man, he's going to love these, you know, these grapes and these apples. And, he, and these are prior to the curse, this fruit. And we think fruit's pretty good now. We have the cursed version. We have the cursed version. And what did fruit look like in that day? What did vegetables taste like? The stuff that your kids, ah, it's disgusting. It was probably incredibly tasty then. We have the cursed version now. And God saw that it was good, verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day, the third day of creation. Now, since I haven't addressed it yet, let, let me address just this quickly. It says evening and morning was the first day. Evening and morning was the second day. Evening and morning was, verse 13, the third day. There are some that for whatever reason want to propose the idea that these don't refer to literal days. What they actually refer to is periods of time and, and ages. So the six days of creation that we find in Genesis 1, they're not literal days. They're, they're actually long ages and time periods of time, and it's just a symbolic reference to those very things. Well, let me just say this from a common sense perspective first. When you think of evening and morning 
How do you calculate it in your mind as a human being? As a day. Okay? I have had small children years ago, and they didn't quite grasp the concept of we, we lived three hours away from, from where my, my parents were, so we're, we're going to go visit. Well, how many days do we go visit? Well, the way we used to tell them, we said, look, it's going to be about four more sleeps. They could, they could grasp that. Okay, four sleeps, that was how they understood days in their vernacular. When we think of evening and morning, we think of a day. And God, interesting, as he talks about the different days of creation, do you notice the repetitive, purposeful, by the Holy Spirit, language in Genesis 1-1, almost as if God knew us or something, right? He says, so it was evening and it was morning the first day. It was evening and it was morning the second day. Evening and morning the third day. Evening and morning the fourth day. You can almost sense God by his Spirit saying, boys and girls, can you say day? Day? Literal day? And beyond the simplistic, common sense reality of what Scripture declares, which you have to choose to believe anyway, the important thing to see as well, when you look at the creation account, God creates creation as an interdependent system that is in working order from the moment that it is created. And that's essential. It could not be long ages because God creates plant life here on the third day. And then he's, by the fifth day, going to create animals and insects and so forth. On the fourth day, the day after, he creates sunlight. That was essential that they be literal days because God creates a working system. And what are plants dependent upon? Sunlight for photosynthesis. And, and what are plants also dependent upon for pollinization? Insects, right? Yes. So God creates a system in its mature form that's interdependent upon one another that's already a working system. So these cannot be long ages. That, that would totally diffuse the reality. That plant couldn't wait a thousand years until the sun came to give it some photosynthesis. They'll be dead by then. God creates in literal days, in six days, a working system interdependent, already functioning, already working, and we see it here in full operation in front of us, six literal days. Don't let anyone try and convince you differently. Verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament, it says, of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and it was so. And then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day. Here's a tough science question. What's that called? The sun. <laughs> and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. Interesting how God, God's talking about you know, making the sun, making the moon. He goes, and he made the stars also. He just kind of throws that in there as if that's, that's no big deal. But to God, it's an amazing creative act to us, but it's no big deal for God. And God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were, it says, the fourth day. So now we see God beginning to create here the, the, the solar system, the sun, the moon, the stars, these kind of things 
Interesting, verse 14 tells us, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. And of course, we know he's talking about the sun, and then of course the moon, as it referred to, and the stars, which he mentions down in verse 16. Remember, back in the first day, it says, God said, let there be light. Here it says, now let there be lights, plural, different Hebrew term. And it's in the plural form, it literally could be translated light bearers. It's almost as if the first, though on the first day, God just interjects light in whatever way he did it, spiritually and supernaturally. And it's like by the fourth day, God says, you know what, maybe I should create some light bulbs. And let me create some light bearers. And he now creates the sun and the moon, of course, to reflect that light for the evening and so forth. And the stars, which, of course, provide light throughout the solar system. And now God creates light bearers. And notice verse 14 says that these were created also to be for signs and seasons. These are things that cause us to have the variation in season. Again, our earth, God created it not only to rotate, but to be on a 23 and a third degree tilt on its axis, which gives us the beauty of the four seasons that we experience. Again, all by accident, I suppose, right? Just all happened by chance that it just we happened to be on that exact 23 and a third degree tilt so that we could have the seasons and that God put the sun exactly where he did 93 million miles away from the earth. And if it, scientists tell us we're just a few miles closer to the earth, this would be a molten ball of, of lava like existence, which nobody could live on. If the sun were just a few miles further away, the earth would be covered with ice and nobody could exist here. But I'm sure it was just by accident that through all the accidental circumstances of fortitudious concurrences and all these big words that bright guys who are professing to be fools, professing to be wise but are fools use, <laughs> shows you I'm not one of them because I can't even use their terms. All these things just by chance. You know, the exact content of our air with the ratio of you know, the oxygen and the nitrine and then the, the 1% of various gases, all these, just by accident, right? No, by a perfect design, by a creator with design, with love for his creation, putting these things together in the ways that they were. God creates the stars. Again, if you're interested in these kind of things, you study astronomy and, you know, again, for some of you who like science, I mean, even some of these stars, Betelgeuse, this massive star so big, Betelgeuse is, the star Betelgeuse, that if you could put the, the, the earth and the sun and, and the rotation pattern that happens and still have a hundred million miles of space still inside of it. This one star. And it says here, almost as if it's just very casual, verse 16, God makes you know, the greater light, the sun to rule the day, the lesser light, the moon to rule the night. And, and he did make the stars too. He threw out a Betelgeuse or two here or there. You know, these amazing stars and things that exist. I mean, just phenomenal realities of what God has designed and created. Verse 20 says, And then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament. So God's now creating, of course, all those things that fly, birds and uh, different types of winged creatures. Verse 21, so God created, there's our word bara again, God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves. So he creates now all the aquatic animals 
It says, with the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So, excuse me, the morning, the morning were, the evening and morning, the fifth day. So on the fifth day we find God creating now some of the animal life. He's creating the sea creatures. He's creating the birds that exist. And again, there's a great uh, DVD, if I remember correctly, I believe it's called God of Wonders. And there are some of these DVDs out there that just show, if you like to just validate for yourself some of the intricacies of some of the incredible complexity of, of the animal life that God has created and to see the way he's created them and his genius. And again, for people who try and say, oh, well, all by accident and circumstances that just kind of evolved that way, when you look at the way God has created animal life, and we haven't even got to man yet, and the complexity of what we are. I mean, it's such a constant testimony of the reality of God's creation. And here we see God creating them and blessing them and now telling them, notice, to be fruitful and to multiply, that God wanted them to fill the earth further. Verse 24, and then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast, on the earth, each thing according to its kind, and it was so. And God made, and take note there, there's that term made. I should have referenced it when we saw it earlier. Here's this again, this combination, create and make. Here's their term, asa, God assembled. So God is creating and at the same time using existing parts as he's putting together in his creation from the elements that exist of creation. It says God made there the beast of the earth according to its sign, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. So again, God made all the creepy things, all the creeps out there. God made them too, so you got to love them. Sorry, I know it's a bad joke, but God saw verse 25 again that it was good. And again, as we look at the plant life, we now see the animal life, and we see again the same pattern of they produce, God tells them to reproduce, but to produce according to their kind. Again, you cannot mate a dog with another dog and ever produce anything other than what? A dog. It completely contradicts the concept and the fundamental ideas of those who propose anything along the lines of an evolutionary theory. And, you know, and even today, I think that argument is almost a mute point anymore. You know, I have a DVD at home, I used to have it in my office, called The Case for Intelligent Design. You know, scientists today, it, almost, it is almost difficult not to believe in the fact that there is a designer. You cannot be, I, I personally, you cannot be an accurate, true scientist. I'm talking about doing true science, where you look for cause and effect, and you check experiments, and you validate things through processes. You cannot be one and not come to the conclusion that something, someone had to design this. This couldn't happen by chance. And, and all the things that are in the basis of that completely contradict all the things that, that, that the Bible teaches very clearly. It takes more faith to believe that than it does in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It takes more faith to not believe that than to simply believe the testimony of everything we see around us. Turn with me real quickly to 2 Corinthians 4. I just want to 
end with a verse. We'll pick up with God's creation of man next week. We'll just it's a good cutoff point there, I guess. Second Corinthians four. I just want to leave you with a final verse here. Second Corinthians four, look with me in verse three. Because we have an allusion to creation here. It says, But even if our gospel is veiled, the idea is like a veil over your face so you can't see, it's veiled to those who are perishing, eternally perishing, on their way to hell, whose minds the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded. Why? Who do not believe. The devil has a capacity to blind someone who chooses not to believe. The devil blinds those who choose not to believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Look at verse 6. Here's my point. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, Genesis 1, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Interesting how Paul goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and he says that same God who spoke light into the darkness, the same God who created light out of nothing, he said it is that same God who commanded by his spoken word light to shine out of the darkness, who shines into our hearts to give the light in our dark heart of unbelief, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen. Our hearts are naturally dark and depraved and sinful. And all God is looking for us, and maybe for you tonight if you don't truly know Jesus Christ, is for you to simply believe. And to let God shine the light into your dark heart to let you see that God's plan for you is to see Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the only one who can forgive your sins and the one who can give you eternal life. The same God who created you and designed you, as we'll see next week, loves you and died on the cross for your sins. And it's a supernatural event where God shines the light into the darkness, into our hearts. And tonight, if you've never chosen to believe, can I encourage you? Believe. Believe. And watch how God floods your heart with light and you see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you know someone who's blinded by the devil because they're choosing not to believe, listen, here's how you pray. God, you shine light into the darkness of creation. You can handle one little measly creature. God, just... Put on the floodlight of your spirit and just let them see the face of Jesus Christ in their dark heart. And you know what? If God can create the heavens and the earth, he can make someone a new creature in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new.